Well, good morning, everyone. Um, as Elder Bob shared, we're in the precipice of a real busy and hectic uh, few months this coming up the summer, and it's going to be just a real joy to see the body at work, functioning, you know, firing on all cylinders in terms of uh, ministry abroad and ministry here, crossing oceans, crossing the border, and crossing streets. And even like B- even BVS, just ministering to our own children and, and um, children of our neighbors. Um, great joy, great thrill to be partnering together in Christ. Look forward to a great uh, few months. It has been somewhat of an eclectic uh, month. Uh, a lot of topical sermons with uh, Missions Month in May and then Adoption Sunday. It has to be a topical sermon. And last week... It was Father's Day, and today, somewhat of a, it's a bridge Sunday, we're transitioning a little bit. I hope, and pray for me, uh, pray for us, and pray for me. We hope, no promises here, but we hope to start Second Timothy next week. But don't hold me to that, because <laughs> I don't know what to expect this week, but we hope to start, and if God gives us grace, we'll be back doing expositional study of, uh, of a book in the, in the Bible. So a few of you have been clamoring for that. You know, I understand. You know, me too. I love just studying the scriptures, studying the text week after week. I'll be starting that hopefully by next week. But today we're going to look at John 15, 9 through 11. We studied this text well over two, maybe two and a half years ago. And reflected upon it this week. Thinking through just things that God was teaching me, and the truths that, that it contains so precious, are so precious. I wanted to share them with you this morning. John 15, 9 through 11, these are the words in red, words of Christ. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I'll start by telling you that I know that God has a sense of humor. Personally, I know this because of how my life has turned out. Just the simple fact that I'm a pastor is a revelation of God's humor. It tells us that God has a great sense of humor that I'm a pastor and my life is devoted to books, devoted to reading and studying, uh, just devoted to books. I'm, my life is surrounded by books. There was some inkling of this potential early on when I was in kindergarten in Korea. I can say this with all humility, and you'll understand why quickly. But out of the whole kindergarten class, there was only two kids that could read. Right? The smart girl and your pastor. Right? Right. James Shin. I don't know how, I don't know why. I don't know the sister was three years older than me and we you know, reading Korean comic books and she would read to me and I'd just read along. In my kindergarten, I could just read like crazy. So, during recess, I would have all these kids sitting around me and I'd read to them like these books. Right? I almost teach them like, you know, listen up. Right? And I would read all these things, right? So the teachers were amazed, and they talked about how smart I am and will be in the future. I can share that with humility because that was the peak of my academic career. I kind of peaked too early. It was downhill from kindergarten. And I'm not even exaggerating. Like a few of you know how I was in high school and God's honest truth. Since kindergarten, books have been my mortal enemy, right? I live my life trying to avoid books and avoid thinking at all costs. And I was the kind of guy, you know, in high school, I would do homework during commercials, right? And um, if I didn't do homework, you know, so what, right? My concern in junior high and high school was anything but studying. And now look at me. Here I am, and I'm in the world of books, and to be honest, books are my joy and burden. I love good books. I love Christian books. I love reading books. 
But they're a burden as well, because that's my work, right? You love your job, but if you're immersed in your job, it can be a burden as well, right? So for me, books are my joy and burden. So for me, I don't want to, like, you know, discourage anyone, but God bless you saying, some of you guys are so gracious and generous, and you guys for Christmas or birthday, like, buy me books. And I'm like, I have to, oh, thank you, brother, you know, <laughs> thank you so much. But it's like when I was in, when I was younger, getting a sweater for Christmas, you know, or getting a pair of pants, because you know, books are my life, uh, my joy and burden. Well, a few years ago, my segue into books um, came, aco- came across a book that became very significant in shaping my heart and my thoughts. Uh, Legacy of Sovereign Joy by Pastor John Piper. This book, and I recommend it to you this summer, good reading for, for the summer. This book highlights the lives and teachings of three prominent men in church history. Pastor Piper masterfully engages each man and describes them in great detail, inspiring the, the heart and informing the head. The three men are Luther, Calvin, and the last one is the one I want to share with you. Uh, Aurelius Augustine, called by many simply as Augustine of Hippo. He was a spiritual giant in every way. A giant sequoia in the midst of saplings. His influence in the Western world, no less the Western church, is simply staggering. Church historian Adolf Harnock said that he was the greatest man the church had possessed between the Apostle Paul and Luther, the Reformer. Benjamin Warfield argued that through his writings, Augustine, quote, entered both the church and the world as a revolutionary force and not merely created an era in the history of the church, but determined the course of its history in the West up to the present day. So this man was not just part of church history. He determined the course of church history and influences it to this day. The publishers of Christian History magazine said, after Jesus Jesus and Paul, Augustine of Hippo is the most influential figure in the history of Christianity. He was the one who gave us the Reformation, not only because... Luther was an Augustinian monk, or that Calvin quoted Augustine more than any other theologian, but because the Reformation witnessed the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over the legacy of the Pelagian view of man. So the two competing views. One is that man has free will. There's righteousness in man. There's an island of righteousness where man chooses God and in some way cooperates with God to earn salvation. And Augustine's view, doctrine of free grace, that God did it all. That God is the author and perfecter. That God saved and redeemed and man has no place for boasting in his salvation. The Reformation was really the fruit of Augustine championing Paul's doctrine of sovereign grace. Biographer Augustino Trait gives this excellent summary of Augustine's powers that made him incomparable in the history of the church. Augustine was a philosopher, theologian, mystic, and poet all in one. His lofty powers complemented each other and made the man fascinating in a way difficult to resist. He was a philosopher, but not a cold thinker. He was a theologian, but also a master of the spiritual life. He was a mystic, but also a pastor. He was a poet, but also a controversialist. Every reader does find something attractive and even overwhelming depth of metaphysical intuition, rich abundance of theological proofs, synthetic power and energy, psychological depth shown in spiritual ascent, and a wealth of imagination, sensibility, 
and mystical fervor. He was indeed a spiritual giant. But his early life gave very little indication of God's plan for him. Really, first 32 years of his life, there was very little evidence that he would ever, ever, ever become a Christian, let alone such a giant, spiritual giant uh, for, for all in church history. He was born in, uh, on November 13th, 354 A.D., near Hippo, in what is now in the country of Algeria. He wrote of his life before Christ. He said, As I grew to manhood, I was inflamed with desire for a surfeit of hell's pleasures, great measure of hell's pleasures. When I went to Carthage at the age of 19, I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. He was so swollen with conceit that he gave himself utterly to sexual pleasures. He gave himself wholeheartedly to immoral pursuits. He was particularly attracted to the pagan theater, replete with idolatrous rites, immoral depictions, and gladiatorial shows. All the while, in the midst of these uh, sinful pursuits, he was a student, he was a philosopher, trying to understand truth. For 11 years, he was restless. He sought for mental rest, but he said he was unable to find it. One day, he said to himself, tomorrow, I will find it. It will appear manifestly and I will grasp it. He employed all of his efforts, his discipline, his energy and resolved, next day I will find and discover truth. That day came and went, still eluded his grasp. He sunk back into deep despondency. In Milan, Italy, he went to hear Ambrose, the preacher of the Christian gospel. More as a curiosity than as a sincere seeker. When he went, though, for the first time in his life, he heard the gospel of free grace. He heard the dynamite gospel of Christ. Paul's words, as articulated by Ambrose, opened his mind to higher thoughts, were driven home with irresistible force to his conscience. He wrote, I was astonished that although now I sensed a love for you, I did not persist in my enjoyment of my God. Your beauty drew me to you, but soon, and he backslid, I was dragged away from you by my own weight, and in dismay I plunged again into the things of this world. He knew that he was held back now, not by anything intellectual, but by sin, namely sexual lust. I was held firm in the bonds of a woman's love. Then came, arguably one of the most important days in church history since the book of Acts. Late August, 386. Augustine was now almost 32 years old. He was stung by his own bestial bondage to lust when others were free and holy to follow Christ. He was sitting in a garden with a friend. These are his words. I was beside myself, driven by the tumult in my breast to take refuge in this garden where no one could interrupt that fierce struggle in which I was my own contestant. I was beside myself with madness that would bring me sanity. I was dying a death that would bring me life. I was frantic, overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting your will, O God, and entering into your covenant. I tore my hair, hammered my forehead with my fists, I locked my fingers and hugged my knees because I was held back from your grace by mere trifles. I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and I gave way to the tears which now had streamed from my eyes. In my misery I kept crying, How long shall I go on saying, Tomorrow, tomorrow, O God, O Lord, why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly, ugly sins at this moment? 
All at once, I heard a song of a child in a nearby house. Again and again, I repeated the refrain, Tole lege, tole lege, take it and read, take it and read. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up, telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of scripture and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. I read the first passage on which my eyes fell, and it was Romans 13, 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, nor in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I had no wish to read more, nor need to read more. For in an instant, as I came to the end of that sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. 386 AD, almost 32 years old, after a lifetime of sin and decadent pursuits, Aurelius Augustine was saved by Christ. God forgave him of his sins, opened his heart eyes and broke his heart and caused him to embrace the gospel. After his salvation, he wrote his confessions and in it, he considered what was going on in his heart during all those years of sin. So he was probing the scriptures, but also probing his heart. What was happening for all those years searching for truth? Why was I so in constant strife, agonizing, repelled against the gospel of grace? Augustine analyzed his own motives down to his root and he concluded this. He said, everything springs from delight. Everything. He saw this as universal. Every man, whatever his condition, desires to be happy. There is no man who does not desire this and each one desires what desires it with such earnestness that he prefers this above all other things. This is what guides and governs the will, namely, what we consider to be our delight, our happiness. And you made us for yourself. And our hearts find no peace till they find rest in you. After his salvation, this was his testimony. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I once feared to lose. God, you drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. Though not to flesh and blood, you who outshine all light, you are hidden deeper than the secret in our hearts, you who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves, O Lord my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. What incredible insight. What an incredible gift. Augustine gives to us. He's merely interpreting the scriptures, probing his heart, and granting us a gift of insight for all of us to enjoy today. That everything springs from delight. That every man, every one of us here, whatever his condition, we desire to be happy. There is not a single one of us that does not desire this. So much so, we desire that peace, that delight above all other things. And this is what guides us, governs the will, whatever we consider to be our delight. Applies to each and every one of us. We're all driven to pursue happiness. All that we do, we're seeking peace. We're seeking joy. We're seeking love. And sad to say, as believers, we find ourselves pursuing after those fruitless joys, those empty joys, those joys that we enjoyed in the flesh, 
And because they're still part of our sinful flesh, we pursue them. Though we know the, the true joy is not found there. Lasting peace, true delight is not found, in, found there. We chase after these things, but they are elusive. Never-ending chase. Run, we run forever in vain while we are to follow Christ. For in Him and Him alone is our true sovereign joy. We find many Christians at times and seasons being led astray from the true and sovereign joy of Christ and falling astray, wandering away and pursuing after these fruitless joys. You know, I come across such Christians often. You know, in my my heart, I, I call them restless Christians. Just every so often, or constantly, continually, they're not happy. They're not at peace. They're unsatisfied. They're not unsatisfied like Paul in terms of pursuing Christ. They're unsatisfied because they're pursuing the world. They're pursuing self. They're pursuing pleasure outside of pursuing Christ. And so, week after week, month after month, sometimes year after year, they chase after these things. Something they believe is lacking in their lives. They seek happiness through material possessions, through entertainment, through relationships, through personal achievements, through ministry even, or through work. Outwardly, they might seem happy, but they're always restless, lacking true joy. Why? Because as Christians... Those things that in an external view that gave us joy in the flesh no longer gives us joy. As believers, children of God, true peace, love, and joy are in Christ alone. And we can't find it apart from being in Him. Jesus called it my peace. John fourteen twenty seven. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give, with, give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Today's passage, our Lord speaks of His love and His joy. He lays out clearly for us how we might abide in His love and how we might have complete joy. I don't think he's toying with us. I don't think he's putting us in this, you know, hamster's cage and making us run in that treadmill all for, this is all for uh, no clear purpose. He's telling us true joy on the earth is possible, but he's telling us how we are to find it. In John 15, God's will for His people is not for us to grit our teeth, waiting for His return and sullenness and despondency. God's will is for His people to abound in His peace, abound in His love and joy in the midst of a sinful world. It is important for us that joy is not just future in heaven, but eternal life began in our salvation and we are to experience it in growing measure before the day of Christ. Let's go to the text. Verse 9. Here we find the manner of our Lord's love for us. The manner of our Lord's love for us. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Consider that. This is the highest affection that we can conceive of. As believers, our Lord loves us, loved us and loves us. But the manner, the extent, the depth of His love for us is paralleled with, consistent with, the Father's love for His own Son. He doesn't leave us to wonder about His love. 
There is no timidity or obscureness in His words. He speaks plainly and directly, just as the Father has loved me. Just as I am God's only Son, and He considers me beloved. That same love, with that same love I love you, with that same intensity, with that same heat, with that same fervor, I love you. That is why Spurgeon said, in the love of Christ, we find our best joy. The pastures of the great shepherd are wide. The sweetest grasses grow close to his pierced feet. The love of Jesus is the center of salvation. It is as the sun in the midst of the heavens of grace. You believe in this love. You know it. You have tasted it. Therefore, Spurgeon said, I speak to an audience that will appreciate the subject, however faulty may be in my handling of it. Jesus' love for us is a familial love. Gracious, unfailing, undeserved love to sinners. This is that remarkable statement in Scripture. A phrase that we ought to highlight and memorize and go back to in those times when we feel like God is far away. He's not answering us. And we feel maybe not part of God's family. Jesus here likens His love for us as in the same force, intensity, and amount as God the Father's love for Jesus, His only Son. So in light of that, He gives us the mandate to His disciples. You're not going to find a greater love than my love for you. I'm not giving you uh, hand-me-downs. I'm not giving you second-rate, you know, big lots version of love. This is the love that the Father has given me and the same love I give to you. So His command is, don't go looking elsewhere. Don't go searching elsewhere for this love. This is the best. This is the greatest. This is from the heart of God. Therefore, He commands us Abide in my love. Abide in my love. The essential and fundamental command by the Lord to His disciples and therefore to all of us here is to abide, continue, remain in His love. Imperative mood, it is a command. He pleads, He exhorts, He commands us not to stray away, not to turn away, not to resign and pursue other things, other loves, Remain and continue in my love. And how do we do this? Verse 10, the means of abiding in Jesus' love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Verse 10 is so helpful here. The question is, how do we abide in Christ's love? How do we accomplish this? What does it mean to remain in Christ's love? Our Lord is so simple. He's so straightforward. He's so practical. so helpful to us. Obey His commandments. If you do that, you will abide in His love. Helps us so much. It's instructive for us here, verse 10. It informs us how we are to view the commandments of Christ. That He loves us by giving us His commandments. And by obedience to those commandments, we're abiding in His love. The commands of the Lord are expressions of His love for us. They're not just laws, arbitrary laws given to us to control us, to harm us, to enslave us, to make us unhappy, to, I don't know, you know, make our lives a drudgery. His commands are an expression of His love for us. His commands, precepts, and decrees all emanate from His love for us. This is so great. It changes, transforms our view, our perspective of God's laws. He 
has given us as laws, as an expression of his love. Personal love to each and every one of us. Three, three quick points about love and Christ's commandments. Again, I believe this is the correct way, correct perspective to have towards God's commandments. All of us, myself included, often and some far too often, we're lured away to a wrong view of God's commands. We forget who God is that gave us these commands. We see God's commands as cold, arbitrary directives, separated from God's character and being. We forget who God is behind the commandments. We forget His motivations in giving us these instructions. God's commands, His instructions, His prohibitions are all expressions of His love for us. Deuteronomy 7, 6-11. Let's turn there together. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11. I mean, we see this as parents, do we not? I mean, you singles out there, you're trying to grasp this concept. You're trying and trying. It's a little hard. But for parents, it's glaringly clear. We give commands to our children not because, you know, we're on a power trip. You know, we want to feel important, right? So we order them around just because there's nothing better to do. No, we give them commands because we love them. And we want to protect them. And, we want to, and it's our way of caring for them. Like one weird rule that we have in our household is, if you're under two years old, you don't come in the kitchen. Right? Under two, you don't come in the kitchen. Why? Because daddy's eating in the kitchen. <laughs> no, that's not why. Because mommy's cooking in the kitchen. And there's fire in the kitchen. And there's knives in the kitchen. So you got a young year and a half old, walking in the kitchen, grabbing you know, pots and pans filled with hot water. It's not, it's not a safe place for a child, for a toddler. So we have this rule. You know, Elizabeth, until she was two, she could not come in. Emma, man, she got that privilege six months ago. A great day where she walked over that threshold all by herself. And she would like hold on to the chair as if by holding on to the chair she can come in the kitchen and that was okay for her. Oh, two years old, you can do that. Ethan, under two, forbidden in the kitchen. Why? Because we love our children. Like God is God for us. And he told us this. Deuteronomy 7, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of this earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Move on to verse 11. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Why? Because these commandments, these statutes, these rules were given because of His love for His people. 1 John 5, 3, this is love for God, love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Why? Because they are expressions of our Father's love for us. So it is our privilege, it is our joy, it is our honor that God would instruct us, that God would care for us, that God would command us and show us such such love to us. Secondly, this is the correct way to experience Christ's love. This is the correct way to experience Christ's love. How do we experience Christ's love? When I was younger, I would experience Christ's love in my heart, right? Where is Jesus? He's in my heart, right? I take him out and I put him back in, right? And I feel, experience Jesus' love. 
Sometimes he's far away from me. Jesus, where are you? Come back. And I would feel this love. And I would feel Jesus' love even when I'm sinning. Even when I'm rebelling. Because my flesh is deceptive. My heart is the biggest liar in the world. And so I am just living in pride and doing all these foolish things, but you know, I would, I would have these you know, sensitive moments where I would feel Jesus' love. So I think a lot of people can like, live these uh, separated lives, like dichotomized lives where they think they're walking in the Spirit because they feel Jesus' love all the while they're living in sin. And it's not connected, it's not fused together. Well, here our Lord tells us, that is not how you experience my love. You experience my love. You partake of my love. You abide in my love by obeying my commandments. Christ's love is experienced and known in every area of our lives and we submit ourselves wholly and completely to His commands. And we suffer for obeying Christ. We experience loss. We experience pain and even persecution or rejection because we obey Christ. Then we experience the fellowship of Christ. Christ suffered. Christ was rejected. Christ grieved. Christ suffered. And in my suffering and obedience to Christ, I experience His fellowship. I experience being with Christ. And we refuse not to cheat at our workplace. When we, when, we, when we choose to obey and do what is right, when we choose to stand with Christ, we experience that, that rejection of this world and personal loss. But at that time, we experience Christ's nearness, Christ's love, because as we read the Scriptures, He endured the same thing. Right? Philippians 3 all over again, right? Not only that, we experience Christ's love And that as we obey Christ's commandments, we see the benefits of obeying God's commandments. We experience the fruits of obeying Christ. In that, we see God's love. Right? I mean, we see that in Cornerstone here. Why are we, you know, I'm the pastor, so I can boast a little bit. Not a sinful boast, but boast in Christ. I love Cornerstone. We're a very good church. Why are we a good church? It's not because I'm a good Christian. It's not because, you know, we have something special. It's not because we figured out some program or some method. It's simply because by the grace of God, we're submitting ourselves to the Word of God. And to the degree we submit as a church to God's Word, to that degree we experience the joy that comes, the blessings that come from obedience to God's Word. Does that make sense? So all the joy that we experience as a church is because we're striving to obey God's commandments. My same thing with, you know, my dad passed away five months ago. Tumultuous relationship to say the least. I mean, just, you know, all sons do this, right? We, we look for a weakness in our dads. You know, like, as a, as a father, I'm, my, my daughters will be loyal to me. They'll love me. They'll care for me. They'll, even they're like massaging me now and they're helping me, you know, put on my clothes. I mean, they're just, they're doing my hair. That's girls. But son, like Ethan, one day he's going to look for my weaknesses. He's going to challenge me. He's going to try to dethrone dad and take over the family. That's sons, right? I did it to my dad. You did it to your dad. Our sons are going to do, do, do it to us. Right? And so that was what I was involved in. And we just butted heads. Right? Well, by God's grace, God saved me. I chose to submit to God. And God said, honor your father and mother, try to honor him. And the last five years of his life, experienced such sweet fellowship with him as fellow believers. We had these sweet talks as father and son, not because my dad's a good dad or I'm a good son or anything special about our, our family, all because the Bible said it, you obey that, you submit to it, you'll enjoy the fruits of that. That is how we experience. And you, I mean, all believers here, to some measure, if you are a believer, you experience that. That you are in chaos, you are lacking wisdom, you didn't know what to do, and you obeyed Scripture, and there is blessing in your life because of the Word of God. I mean, the raising kids, right? you raise your children in the ways of the world, you won't experience the love of God. 
but you raise your children according to the instruction and admonition of the Lord, and there will be this relationship you have with your son or daughter. There will be this sweetness in your, in your family, or as you obey as husband and wife. There will be sweetness in that relationship, and you'll experience, this is God's love for me, through His commandments. And finally, the third point about Christ's love is that again, obedience is not just the proof of Christ's love for us, but it is proof of our love for Christ. Christ not only calls us to obey in light of His love, our obedience is evidence of our love for Him. We can't separate love and obedience. You say, John fourteen twenty one. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me, we love my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If you say, I love God, but do not obey his commandments, refuse to submit to his scriptures, your love for God is a farce. You are deceived. You are blind. You are lost. Your heart is hardened. Because if you have God's commandments and keep, keep them. You, that is love for Christ. You can't separate love and obedience. These three points we find in our Lord's example. We don't have to look elsewhere to see someone model for us this kind of abiding in God's love. Our Lord was not like the Pharisees. He lived out God's commandments and His own commands. Verse 10, If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love, just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. Our Lord modeled this abiding by faithfully and perfectly keeping the Father's commandments to Him. Right? He commands us to obey Him, obey Him, abide in His love, and He points to Himself. Guys, God gave me commandments, and I obeyed them as an expression of my love for the Father. And it was not a one-time event. I continued to abide in my Father's love, because I know that the commandments that the Father gave me were an expression of His love for me, and my obedience to the Father's commandments are my expressions, are fruits of my love for Him. So I'm not telling you to do one thing while I'm doing another. I'm telling you to do this because I have done it myself and I'm doing it myself. Look at me as a model, an example of what you are called to do. John 4.34 My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. John 8.29 I always do the things that are pleasing to God. John 12, 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. John 14, 31, I do as the Father has commanded me. John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. His obedience. was a demonstration of His love for the Father. It was His meat, it was His food to do His Father's will. So that, was, that must be our obedience. That must be our obedience to Him. We are to run in the path of God's commandments. We are to keep them. Verse 11, the reason for our Lord's commandments. The reason for our Lord's command. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. Here we come, full circle. Every man is driven by pursuit of happiness. This happiness is found only in Christ, in obeying Christ. And God gives us these commandments. Why? so that we might have His joy. He taught us these truths 
that we might have His joy and have that joy in its fullness. That was um, Christ's example, was it not? Hebrews 12.2 The writer of Hebrews said about Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our Lord did not run this race of faith. Our Lord did not go to the cross for the pleasure of this race, or the pleasure of, or some satisfaction of sacrificing Himself for us. He was motivated by more than this. He was motivated by what was at the end of the race. The joy set before Him. The joy of glorifying the Father. The joy of pleasing God. The joy that is experienced by those who give glory to God by their lives. He ran for the joy of exaltation. He said this in His final prayer in John 17. I glorified you on earth. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Our Lord gained His reward by glorifying His Father while on earth. And He glorified God by totally exhibiting the Father's attributes and by fully doing the Father's will. And so, like Christ, we run with the same motivation. We run... Because the joy that is here on earth for obeying God's commandments and also the joy that is awaiting us in God's presence if we, are, if we continue, if we abide, if we remain in God's love by obeying His commandments. He gave us these commandments so that, that this joy may be in us that our joy may be full. Close our time with some final thoughts. Let me ask you a question, some few questions. Are you a joyful person? Is your personality, character, disposition, attitude characterized by joy? Is joy a part of your constitutional attitude it's the basic fiber of your life of your heart if you are lacking joy as a Christian only one reason if you're not a Christian you're lacking joy it's because of sin right? you should be miserable because sin remains right? God is waiting for you at the end of your life and he will call you to account for every sin committed while on earth. And you don't stand a chance before a thrice holy God. Be righteous in His sight. He is the great heart searcher and He knows all and He will call you to account and you have nothing in your account, nothing to show but you will be righteous in His sight. So if you're lacking joy, you're lacking peace, you're lacking uh, delight because of sin, well, to a different measure, but in the same manner, as a Christian, if you are lacking joy, only one reason, you are not obeying Christ's commands. You are not walking in the Spirit. No matter how much you feel Christ's love, no matter how much fervor there is in your ministry, in your study of the Word, or praise, or prayer, or your fellowship, Lack, there's a lack of joy in your life. It can only mean one thing, really. Because joy is a second fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, suffering. Love, joy, peace. In fact, joy is a command of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.4, Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Joy is the only right and appropriate response 
the revelation of our great God and our great salvation. Joy is promised to all those who obey Christ. Verse 11 of John 15. So if you're saying, well, I obey, I'm obeying Christ. I'm abiding in His love, but I don't have joy. You are saying, God is unfaithful to His promise. He told me, if I do A, B, C, D, He will give me joy. Well, I don't have joy. That must mean God is unfaithful to, unfaithful to His promise. Well, could it be God is faithful to His promise, but you are not faithful to abide in Christ's love by obeying His commands. I'm you. I trust Scripture over against self. True joy is the product of the Word of God sown in a believer's heart that is applied in his life where he's living it out and true joy surely follows. Joy is not... uh, determined by circumstance. Joy is constant. Joy is not fleeting. Joy is consistent regardless of the circumstance of the hour. What did Paul say? 2 Corinthians 6.10 Sorrowful but rejoicing. Full of sorrow but I'm rejoicing. 2 Corinthians 7.4 In all our affliction... I am overflowing with joy. Even in loss and trials, even in great heartache, disappointment, an obedient believer is moved and overflowing with joy. Right. You know, we, we go through pain and loss in life. And so we don't, you know, put on a smile and pretend everything's okay. No, we weep. Right? We grieve. We have sorrow. You know, I'm reminded of believers in our church who've experienced loss of family members. And our, our exhortation is, we grieve with you. We weep with you. Go ahead. You know, shed tears. You know, cry out loud. But we exhort you humbly to grieve as believers. How do believers grieve? We don't grieve as if we have no hope. We, 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 we cry, we mourn, yet it is undergirded by joy, knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that God is good, knowing that God is in control and God is with us. The obedient Christian, that is the undergirding theme of his or her life. They share the, 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 the sorrows, the agonies of life, but they always end with saying, God is good. God is sovereign. We rejoice in Christ. The disobedient Christian, in every area of life, it ends with bitterness. It ends with resentment, anxiety, anger, and frustration. The first sign of a person's faith that is withering and drying up is loss of joy. Loss of joy. Right? David prayed this in Psalm 51. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me. Give back to me, Lord. Now, when did that joy, when was it taken from him? When did he lose that joy of salvation? It was not when Nathan rebuked him. It was not. That joy was gone when he sinned with Bathsheba. That joy was given to him when Nathan rebuked him. Does that make sense? When we sin, joy of salvation is gone. When God rebukes us, when Scripture rebukes us, when a fellow believer rebukes us, and we come to our senses, that is God's way of bringing back that joy. That is why David said in Psalms 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, when I was hiding my sins, alone in my sins, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the, as by the heat of summer. 
Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. See, for a child of God, he can only be miserable when he's away from Christ. He can have everything taken away from him. He can be publicly just shamed and and have his children, have his kingdom taken away. But David rejoiced after his rebuke. Why? Because he has God. Important for us to recognize and realize that we need Christ. Christ is our joy. And when we have Christ, we have true and eternal joy. That is to be the hallmark of the believer. Joy in Christ and joy because of Christ. Second and final question. I'm preaching to myself here. What fruitless joys are you holding on to? What fruitless joys are you holding on to? As believers, we know that they're empty. We know through scripture and through experience, it is hollow, it is bankrupt, it is fleeting. There is no lasting joy there. And like Augustine, we fear losing it as if we're losing something valuable. And we know full well through the wisdom of scriptures, we're holding on to dirt. We're holding on to mud when God gives us youth, right? God gives us uh, filet mignon, I don't know. God gives us cheesecake. We're holding on to mud. We're afraid. Oh, I want the cheesecake, but I don't want to lose this mud, this dirt. What are you holding on to? Morality, impurity, jealousy, greed, covetousness, self-love, selfishness, pride, worldliness, fear of man, pleasing man, comfort and pleasure of this world. Let us heed our Lord's love-filled commands to us that we would abide in His love. That as we obey Christ's love, Christ's commands, we are abiding in His love and the resultant uh, effect in our lives would be the joy of Christ ever increasing in our lives all to the glory of the Father. Father, we do thank You and praise You We bless your name. And Lord, we repent of our wrong view of the scriptures. We repent of how we have viewed your truths because of our own sinfulness. Because because we experience our own sinfulness, we can't believe at times that you gave us these commands out of love for us. Because we're so prone to exercising authority that's given to us in varying varying places. Ah, out of pride and of self-will, we forget, Lord, you do not give us these commands for yourself, for to control us or for deny us pleasure. Lord, you have given us these commands because of your great love for us, treating us as members of your own family, treating us as your sons, as your children. So, oh God, we pray that you would do the same work that you've done and, and Men and women of past, you will grant to us true and earnest faith to cast off our pursuit of these fruitless joys. And we would set our paths straight and clear to pursue after Christ, to pursue His commands, and to abide in His love by obeying your commands. Lord, we thank you for so much. We thank you, Lord. We are unworthy uh, of such 
privilege in our lives to be treated in such, such ways. Again, we're like the prodigal son. We deserve to be treated as your slaves, separate from your household. But you bring us into your home, adopting us as your children, giving us all the benefits, privileges, and blessings in Christ. May we not spurn these privileges, but Lord, may we be wise by God's grace, humble ourselves and obey your commands so that your joy might be in us. In your name we pray.